And as we start into our uh, sermon this morning, uh, I would like us to consider for a few moments uh, the, the idea of report cards. All right, report cards. Now, for some of you, maybe that brings up some bad memories, all right? Maybe you've had some bad report cards in the past growing up, and it seemed like with bad report cards, I mean, those were the ones that you had to go have your parents sign. Uh, typically, you didn't have to take good report cards to get your parents to sign them, but bad report cards, you, you did. You had to show your parents they had to sign them, and so I apologize if I'm bringing up any bad memories for people. Uh, but but good report cards were exciting, and uh, the, you know the, even sometimes there's a lot of uh, uh, incentives for good report cards, whether it be with your parents or with some local businesses. So for example, if you take a report card with A's and B's to certain Chick Fil A's, uh, you get a free uh, eight pack of chicken nuggets, or you get a free ice cream cone there. Uh, if you take uh, 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 straight A's, oh no, sorry, excuse me, Krispy Kreme donuts, they, they will give a free glazed donut for every A on a report card, all right? So you could really cash in there at a Krispy Kreme. McDonald's gives you a free Happy Meal for a straight A report card. Uh, some banks will even deposit a dollar into a savings account for every A you have on a report card. Um, and so, yes, thanks for bringing up the lights a little bit. Appreciate that. So uh, if you got enough A's growing up, I mean, you could really cash in. Uh, possibly by the time college starts, you could have enough money to buy uh, part of one book for a class, uh, possibly. So that could be a really good thing. Uh, I remember growing up, I would take good report cards to a, a putt-putt arcade place, and I'd get some free tokens uh, to play there. Now, I realize, uh, you know, we do have a lot of homeschoolers in the room, and you probably have no idea what I'm talking about with report cards. I don't know how your parents handle that. Uh, you might have different grading systems depending on, uh, depending on your homeschool. But right now, you're probably a bit confused. You know, you're not sure if that, that alligator you got in spelling or the thumbs up you got in math, you're not sure if that's going to be able to be converted at some of these businesses, right? Um, and so it's okay, homeschoolers, if you don't know what I'm talking about, there's a lot of advantages to homeschooling. Uh, let us public school kids have this one thing, all right? We have our report cards, all right? But you see, for the most part, we are a people who want a good report card, right? We do. Even the ones, even the kids growing up that, you know, acted like they didn't want one, they deep down wanted one. They were just trying to play it off cool, you know? Uh, but deep down, we want a good report. We, we want to be approved and accepted and commended. We want the affirmation of a job well done, uh, that we have met the mark, that we have, pes that we have passed the class, that we have met the approval. We want that, and we long for that. Most of the kind of the daddy issues we see in our world is really this underlying longing for the approval and affirmation of a loving father. And here we today arrive at Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, which we started into last week. Some have called the Hall of Faith. And a lot of times we think of this as kind of the heroes of the faith. And yet it won't take long for us to get into this chapter to see that these people that are being commended, these people that have been given a good report card by God, right? A lot of these people have some pretty significant failings. Now, we won't see all of it today as we look at Abel, Enoch, and Noah, although if you stick with Noah long enough in the Genesis account, you see some concerning things, right? But think about some of the people we're going to talk about in this chapter. We're going to talk about Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Moses and Rahab and David and Samson. And we could look into all the, the parts of their lives and see all of their moral failures and how, how they didn't you know, uh, live up to what God had called them to, and yet they did receive a good report by God. They were commended by Him. And here's, here's the key. It's in the first few verses of Hebrews 11. All right, here's the key. Hebrews 11, verse 1, which we, we covered last week, says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it, for by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. 
And so you'll, you'll remember what we talked about last week, how faith, how this, this trust, this reliance, this dependence upon God, it's, it's not a blind faith. It is a faith that is according to knowledge. And not just an intellectual knowledge, uh, but an intimate, knowing, loving, trusting knowledge of God. We learned that last week that faith is our foothold for the future. It's the, the title deed we have in our pocket. It's faith is what grabs hold of what God has promised to us in the future and allows us for us to enjoy it today. We also saw that faith is the evidence of all the things unseen. Our faith is the evidence of the gift of salvation that God has given us. And what we see here is that for all those who want a good report with God, all those who want to be commended by God and to be accepted and approved and, 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 and welcomed in by God, it is not by their performance or their good works that they are commended. It is by their faith that they are commended. All these people that we will look at in Hebrews 11, they have significant failures. They have missed the mark. They have fallen short of what God has called them to, and yet it is by their faith that they are commended by God. It is by their faith that they receive a good report by God. And so the author of Hebrews is not telling us simply to go be like Moses or to go be like Samson and to imitate everything they did. No, he's saying, look at their faith. In spite of all their weaknesses, in spite of all their failings, in, in spite of all their shortcomings, look at their faith. And it was their faith by which they were commended. And therefore, as they were commended by their faith, so too are we commended by God by faith. And therefore, today we must start to look at what a life of faith looks like. What a life of faith really looks like. And today we're going to get kind of a good big picture summary of what a life of faith looks like as we look at the faith of Abel, Enoch, and Noah. All right, this is the, the, the pre-flood trio of faith that we're going to look at this morning. And the reason I can say that I think this gives us a good big picture of what a life of faith looks like is because Abel is going to give us an example of what it looks like to worship by faith. Enoch is going to give us an example of what it looks like to walk by faith. And Noah is going to give us an example of what it looks like to work by faith. And so that's where we're going this morning. What does it look like? What does a life of faith look like? What does it look like to worship, to walk, and to work by faith? If you want to be commended by God, if you want a good report, I've got good news for you. This morning in Christ, God's not holding all your failings against you. He's commending you because of your faith. And so may we ask him to help us live a life of faith. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll jump into our passage. Father God, we do ask for your help this morning. Lord, we come to your word this morning by faith. Trusting that you will accomplish, Lord, great things through the preaching and the receiving of your word. And so God, we ask for your help on a day that's a bit, a bit dreary, on a day that it was maybe tempting to, to just want to stay in bed, Lord, we, on a day that, that we can't see the sunshine, but we know the sun is shining. Father, we do ask for your help. We ask that you would give us faith, that you would strengthen our faith, and that through your word, Lord, we would rest and enjoy that our faith is dependent upon a faithful God. So we ask as we look at these examples from your word that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, and that you'd strengthen us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hebrews 11, verse uh, 4. God's word says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Cain and Abel, two, two sons of Adam and Eve, right? Both come to worship God. 
God accepts the sacrifice of Abel, but not the sacrifice of Cain. Now, they both appear to be religious on the surface, right? I mean, Cain is not like the obvious rebel that's like in the, you know, the biker gang. My apologies if you're a biker gang. But, you know, don't picture Cain as like the rebel on, off to the side, like just, you know, uh, uh, scheming and snickering. No, these are two brothers that come to worship. Cain is coming to worship. They both appear to be religious. Both are coming to God to worship. And you could really even argue that Cain's sacrifice probably to our eyes looked more impressive on the surface than Abel's did. All right, look with me and see for yourself. Turn, hold your spot in Hebrews, but if you want to turn back to Genesis chapter 4, we're going to kind of be going back and forth from, from Genesis to Hebrews. All right, so turn back to Genesis chapter 4. And to catch you up a little bit, Genesis 1 and 2, things going really well. Genesis 3, not so much, okay? In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they'd sinned against God. God had cursed the serpent. He'd cursed the ground. He'd removed Adam and Eve from the garden, driven them out of the garden to the east end, put a cherubim there with a flaming sword to guard the way back to the tree of life. So Adam and Eve, they've left the garden. They've started to have kids, and two of their sons are Cain and Abel. And that's where we pick it up in Genesis 4, verse 3. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, God's word doesn't tell us exactly why God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. But here's what we do know. Okay, we know that Cain was a worker of the ground. He was a farmer, and he brought some of his produce as an offering to the Lord when he came to worship. Now, farming the ground is hard work. I mean, just ask any farmer or any gardener. It's, it's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of preparation that goes into it. There's, there's a lot of plowing and planting and watering and weeding, and a lot of hard work goes into getting produce from the ground. And so Cain's sacrifice might, again, might have even looked a bit more impressive. Like a lot of hours went into getting that. He might have even had the produce look better and prettier and more put together and more elaborate. Abel, on the other hand, shows up. And what we do know about Abel is it says that he brought the firstborn of his flock. All right? Very clear that Abel is bringing the best of what he had. And while raising animals is difficult... This offering was probably not as neat and pretty as the offering of produce was. I mean, this was an animal sacrifice. It was bloody. It was messy. And so here we have two men coming to worship God. One has a prettier, nicer, more put-together sacrifice. The other one has a bloody, messy sacrifice. And what we see is that God accepts Abel's and not Cain's. And Cain is angered by this. And he's probably just, you know, thinking, you know, I, I worked harder than Abel for my sacrifice. I mean, I had to plow the ground. I had to plant and water and weed. I had to keep the animals away from it. And maybe even some of Abel's animals, I had to keep them away from eating my produce. And all Abel did was just show up and kill one of his animals. I mean, come on. You see, it seems... It seems as if Cain wanted to worship God on his own terms. And Abel was coming by faith to worship God on God's terms. And let, me, let me explain that a little bit. All right, Hebrews 11 verse 4, it says that Abel worshiped God by faith. 
And remember, this is not a blind faith. It is a faith that is according to knowledge. Now, we know Cain and Abel did not have the scriptures like we have them today. Cain and Abel did not have the confessions and creeds that we have today. But they did have some knowledge about God. They did hear firsthand about what had happened to mom and dad in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, surely Adam and Eve would have shared some of those things with them from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I, I mean, I've, I've heard my parents' testimonies enough. I, I think I could probably repeat them to you. Uh, I would have to think that Adam and Eve had told Cain and Abel about that one time they were in the garden and things all went south. And so what Cain and Abel knew, what had likely been revealed to them, was that when their parents sinned, they had in their own strength tried to cover their sin and shame with fig leaves. They had tried to take things that grew from the ground that they could fashion together for themselves to cover their sin and shame themselves. However, what happens when God shows up is that he does not accept their fig leaves as an acceptable covering. He does not commend them for their self-sufficiency and their ingenuity for covering up their own sin and shame. No, what does God do? He provides them with proper coverings by killing an animal, by shedding blood, and by clothing them. And by doing so, he's teaching them four things that now Adam and Eve know, and likely, they, certainly, they would have taught their boys as well. All right, so there's maybe a little bit of speculation here, but I don't think there's much, okay? So these, these four things that are pointed out to us by A.W. Pink in his, his writing on the book of Hebrews, this is what he thinks that Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve likely knew at this time, all right? He thinks, number one, because of the, all the events that happened in Genesis 3, it's likely that they all knew, number one, that to stand before a holy God, you need a proper covering. Right? That was something that had been revealed through this incident there in Genesis 3. To stand before a holy God, you need a proper covering. Secondly, they likely knew that humanly manufactured coverings were not adequate. Right? God did not accept the fig leaves. He said, no, I will provide this. They knew, number three, then, that God would provide the necessary covering apart from any human effort. It is God who clothes Adam and Eve and who provides that to them. And number four, they likely all knew that the only acceptable covering for sin required the death or the shedding of blood of an acceptable sacrifice. And so if we go into Genesis 4, and we see that Abel is offering his worship by faith, and a faith that is according to knowledge, Right? We see that they likely knew these things. They likely knew that to stand before a holy God, you need a proper covering. They likely knew that humanly manufactured coverings were not going to be adequate. They likely knew that God was going to provide the necessary covering apart from any human effort, and they knew that an acceptable sacrifice uh, had to be uh, offered up. And so it seems like what Cain is doing here is reverting back to the fig leaves. He's showing up with a nice, pretty sacrifice that has been put together by human effort. He showed up to worship God on his own terms and not on God's terms. And in light of this, Cain was really the first religious hypocrite that we see in the world. And there's been many a church-going person that has followed in his footsteps. This is the way of Cain that we see referenced later in the scriptures. The way of Cain is to worship God out of a heart of pride and out of an attitude of self-sufficiency. That's the way of Cain. Worshiping God out of a heart of pride and an attitude of self-sufficiency. Now, maybe that's, maybe that's speculating too much. I, I don't think it is, but we can, we, maybe that's an argument. It's speculating too much. We don't know for sure why God accepted Abel's and not Cain's. But here is absolutely what we do know for certain, all right? We ultimately know that God sees the heart of the worshiper. God sees the heart of the worshiper. And so we know something was not right in the heart of Cain as he approached God to worship. 
We know from the Proverbs, in Proverbs 15, verse 8, that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. Here with Cain and Abel, we have two men. One appears religious. One was commended as righteous. Cain came with pride and self-sufficiency. He approached God with the fruit of his works. Abel approached God by faith on God's terms with a sacrifice that would point to the once and for all sacrifice for sins that would come when Christ would shed his own blood to cover the sins of his people. And in Abel, we see a shadow of Christ. Christ himself calls Abel righteous Abel. And in Abel, we see a shadow of Christ as righteous Abel was murdered by the religious and prideful of his day, Cain. And the blood of Abel cries out from the ground. It cries out for justice. But we know that Christ's blood speaks a better word. We're going to later see in Hebrews 12, verse 22, which go ahead and flip back to Hebrews 11. But up on the screen, you'll notice we'll have Hebrews 12, verse 24, which will say, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, yes, Abel's blood cried out for justice. And it is the same cry that cries out anytime innocent blood is spilled. But Christ's blood cries out something far more glorious, something that is far more foreign and unnatural to human beings. You see, Christ's blood cries out forgiveness. Christ's blood cries out that Jesus has paid it all for those who are sprinkled by his blood. Justice has been satisfied. And it is faith in his blood and what his sacrifice has accomplished for us that we come and worship God. Church, are you worshiping God by faith? Or do you come to worship him in the way of Cain? Listen, we cannot approach God because of the work of our own hands. There's no amount of good produce we could produce or grow in our lives that would be an acceptable offering to God. We can only approach the Almighty by the blood of Christ, by the sacrifice of Christ. And therefore, there is no need to come in here to worship God acting like you've got it all together. That's the way of Cain. You can go somewhere else to go play church and go worship in the way of Cain, right? You don't have to come in here like that. We don't come in here acting like we've got it all together, acting like we've got something to offer God that will be acceptable. No, we come in here week after week and month after month and year after year to humble ourselves and to confess time and time again that there is nothing in these hands we can bring, right? Only to the cross we cling, right? And so therefore, come with your mess. Come with your cries for mercy and grace. Come quickly and do not hide from him. Our God knows our hearts. Like we could hide from him anyway, right? God knows our hearts. He knows what is in us. And he died to save us from our pride and our self-sufficiency. He came to save us from worshiping like Cain. And so let us worship by faith with hearts of humility, throwing ourselves into Christ and trusting that it is only his sacrifice alone that will be acceptable to God. And that's where the life of faith has to start. It must start with worshiping God by faith. It is no accident that Abel is mentioned here first. If you don't start the life of faith with worshiping God by faith, everything's going to be out of whack to follow. 
It must start with beholding him by faith. We must start our life with the proper worship of God by faith, a worshiping of God that is on his terms, not ours. But the life of faith doesn't stop there. We are not just just to worship by faith, but we are also to walk by faith. And here's where we are reminded of one of the most intriguing men uh, mentioned in the Bible, a man that is not, not much is written about him in the scriptures, uh, but here he is commended for his faith. So look back at, at Hebrews 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Enoch was one of the two men recorded in the Bible that didn't experience death, but they were taken to be with God. Elijah was the other one who was taken up in a whirlwind to heaven. Um... I think it's, it's pretty cool that these two guys didn't have to experience death. Probably the only one that maybe has some beef with it would maybe be Lazarus, right? I mean, he had to die twice, and these guys not even once. So I think uh, he would maybe be the only one that has some beef uh, about this, all right? But what we, know, what we know about Enoch, we don't know a ton, but what we do know is that he was the great-grandfather of Noah. And he lived in a time where the world was even far worse than it is today. We know from the book of Jude that he was a preacher and that he had prophesied to his generation. And back in Genesis 5, so if you want to flip back to Genesis 5, I know I'm having you flip a bunch here, but back in Genesis 5, we see a brief mention of him, of Enoch, starting in verse 18. We find him in a genealogy in a line of people who are living extraordinarily long lives compared to what we typically know humans to live today. Uh, you must remember that in a pre-flood world, uh, the environment, our world was, was very different and it allowed for people to live uh, for longer st- spans of time. Um, although Enoch, he, he lives relatively short compared to both his parents and his kids. Uh, but Enoch still does live 365 years which I think we could all say, that, I mean, compared to us, that's a long time, right? Uh, we know what it's like to maybe live by faith for 10, 20, 30, 40, maybe some of you 50, 60, 70 years. Enoch lived by faith for 365 years, okay? So there's a different kind of comparison here, all right? But notice what Genesis 5 says of Enoch's life. In Genesis 5, verse 18, when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Notice verse 22. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God And he was not, for God took him. Enoch walked with God. Everywhere else in this genealogy, it says so-and-so died, right? So-and-so died. So-and-so, you know, lived this crazy long time, and then they died. But there is a striking difference with Enoch. It says that he was taken taken by God. And the author of Hebrews explains it even further when he said that he should not see death, that he should not experience death. But notice how verse 22 and verse 24 in Genesis there describe Enoch's life. It says he walked with God. When the Bible speaks of someone walking with God, it's describing a person who has a close relationship with God. Someone who's looking to God. Someone who's listening to God. Someone who's enjoying God. And this is talking about uh, enjoying a personal relationship with God. 
Not just coming to worship him by faith, but then also enjoying a relationship with him by faith. And so turn, turn back to Hebrews. Because our author in Hebrews is going to say that without this kind of faith, a faith that enjoys God, that it is impossible to please him. Because this is what God desires. He's made a way for you to draw near through the sacrifice of Christ. And he desires for you to draw near and to know him and to enjoy him and to walk with him. And what does it say for those that draw near and seek him? It says, and he will reward those who do. Well, with with, with what, you might ask? Well, ultimately with himself. God himself is the reward. God is so good. He is so gracious. He is so supreme. He is so good. I mean, he's just, he's glorious. What other better thing could he give you other than give you himself? Church, are you walking with him? Are you enjoying him? I love walking with Brit. And our walks look differently now, you know, depending on if we're just trying to keep all four kids surviving, you know, walking down the street, not getting hit by a car or something. But in college, we used to go on long walks on campus. And uh, Britt lived uh, on like the furthest dorm that you could have on campus. It was out on the fringes. It was out where, you know, no one really wanted to travel or go. Uh, But if it was the end of the day or something, I would oftentimes walk with her back to her dorm. And it was a long walk. The the, the walk back to my dorm by myself was longer, though. (laughs) Because what happens when you're walking with someone you love? There's something energizing about that, right? The destination is not as important as enjoying the one that you are walking with. And when you're walking with someone you love, what's happening? Well, number one, you will look at them. I mean, unless it's like one of those walks where you're in the doghouse or something and both people are just, you know, looking the opposite direction. But when you're walking with someone you love, you you look at them often. When you're walking with someone you love, you're listening to them, right? You're you're not, you know, hey, do you want to go on a walk? Sure, yeah, okay. And then you put headphones in, you know, and you're just walking. No, you're listening to them. You're enjoying them. Church, are you walking with God? Are you looking to Him? Are you listening to Him? Are you enjoying Him? You see, there's so much to look at in life, right? And typically we're looking at ourselves because that's what sin does, right? It causes us to turn in on ourselves. We live in a house full of mirrors like we've talked about before, right? But sin causes us to turn in on ourselves. We like to look at ourselves. But the person who is walking with God by faith is not looking at themselves so much as they are looking to God. And looking to God is is what reorients the compass of your life. Looking to Him is what helps you find true north and understand which way you are to go. Are you looking to God? Some of you are are walking and, and you haven't looked to Him in so long, you don't even realize you're not even that close anymore. Well, to walk with someone, it also means to listen to them. Part of the reason you go on a walk with someone is to get away from all the other noises going on in the world, right? If you're talking to someone maybe in a crowded room or a crowded party, it's hard to sometimes hear what they're saying. It's hard to tell if, if, it's, if, if that's their voice or someone else that's talking to you. But when you go on a walk with someone, you can hear them. All the other voices have been silenced and you can just go and you can listen to them. Church, we have a lot that we could listen to in our world. 
We, we could have voices piped into our ears 24-7 from podcasts and social media and news and friends. We could always be listening to someone if we wanted to. But to walk with God by faith means that we must be intentional to have times that we silence all other voices and we listen to God. Are you walking with him? And this, this could maybe be even really practical. Maybe some of you literally just need to go on a walk with him. <laughs> right? Maybe just some of you need to get out into creation and just silence all the other noises and voices that are coming in and just actually listen to him. Maybe some of you need to set the alarm clock just a bit earlier before everyone else gets up and open up God's Word and just listen to Him. Are you walking with Him? Are you enjoying Him? To walk with Him by faith means that we are constantly looking to Him. We are constantly going to His Word. We are constantly listening to him, and we are constantly enjoying him. If there are other things you are enjoying more than your relationship with God, hey, praise God for those things, but, but I think we need to enjoy God even more because he's more glorious. There's more joy to be had in him. There's more to enjoy in him than anything else or anyone else in the universe. Are we walking with him? The life of faith is one that is marked by worshiping him by faith, walking with him by faith, and then working by faith. Now, why can I say that this passage is pointing to us working by faith? That maybe, maybe this one seems like I'm stretching a little bit to try to keep the three W's going. Uh, I, I don't think so. I don't think it's a stretch, all right? Because we are about to be reminded of a pretty good boat builder who did pretty good work. Work that we are all still benefiting from today. In fact, the reason you and I are standing here today is because this man worked by faith. All right, look back at Hebrews 11. Look back at Hebrews 11, verse 7. <clears throat> Hebrews 11, verse 7 says, By faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now I know most of you are probably at least a little familiar with the story of Noah. And I'd encourage you to go back and read Genesis 6 and the, the flood account as you prepare for your city group either this week or next week. But I think we can all agree that the work that God called Noah to do, it required a lot of faith. He was building a huge ark, nowhere close to the water, for 120 years. Can you imagine what the neighbors thought? I mean, I'm embarrassed to take my trash out on trash day in broad daylight uh, because I'm worried about what the neighbors will think, right? Uh, if you guys, I don't know if anyone can relate to this, but my neighbors, they have like one, one bag of trash, right? Just one simple, maybe like a Ziploc baggie of like uh, used, you know, uh, I don't know, paper towel they used last Thursday. And that's like all they have sitting out there. And I'm like coming out with like multiple cans and bags. And so I have to wait till the sun sets and no one can see me. And uh, I go out there and bring out all the trash that we have. But I'm worried about what the neighbors think. That's the, uh, that's the point. All right. I'm not just trying to vent about why does no one else have as much trash as we do. I don't know. But Noah, can you imagine what the neighbors thought? I mean, he, he was working during the daylight for a long time. This wasn't like just something he would hope that would go unnoticed, right? And maybe they wouldn't, wouldn't be able to tell what he was doing. But he kept working by faith. It says that he had a reverent fear, a reverent fear for what God had warned. 
And he trusted what God had said. And, that, and, and God's word says that by his faith, he became an heir of righteousness. Such an important phrase there. Meaning he inherited righteousness. He received righteousness. He didn't earn it. He didn't produce it. He inherited it. He received it. He was an heir of righteousness. But what does it mean for us to work by faith? Because I'm assuming God has not called many of you to build an ark. All right? That's why we wanted to remind you, we put that picture up of the rainbow, just to remind you that even though it's raining today, God's not calling you to build an ark. All right? Probably not. But what does it mean for us to work by faith? This could be a, a message in and of itself, so I, I will keep this brief. One thing that this means for us to work by faith is that we work in such a way that we have our great-great-grandkids in mind. You see, to work by faith is to work in such a way that you are working on what God has given you today to work on, trusting that it will accomplish what God has for it tomorrow. And typically, God has the long game in mind. Right? Now, now, we don't know when Christ returns. I hope it is soon. Nothing wrong with having a sense of urgency, like he could come back any hour. Nothing wrong with that, having a sense of urgency to work hard to get after it, but not so in a way that we should make hasty decisions or foolish or unwise decisions, right? Like people that they'll, they'll, they'll predict the year that Christ is returning and they'll sell everything and do everything they can right before that year. And then they realize, oh, he didn't come back, right? Yeah, we don't know when Christ is coming back. We should have a sense of urgency and working and seeing that happen, but we also have to understand that God typically has the long game in mind. God typically has the long game in mind. We have to work in such a way today that we are trusting for God to use that work today to accomplish whatever he would have for it tomorrow. Here's, here's one practical example uh, that, that God was, was teaching me the other day. Uh, those of you that are parents, You'll understand sometimes it's hard. It's hard to really be encouraged sometimes in your parenting because you don't always see immediate fruit from it, right? Uh, those times that I've, I've tried to kind of lead a, a family devotional or a family time of worship, right? We've got, you know, one uh, uh, maybe having to go to time out, not sure if anyone's listening. We're kind of, you know, no one's walking the aisle. No one's giving me affirmation after, right? And it doesn't seem like I'm seeing immediate fruit from that. And so a lot of things with parenting, whether it's disciplining or educating your kids or training, right, training them up in the way they should go, you don't see always immediate fruit. There has to be a working by faith in our parenting to trust that God is going to use that work today to accomplish something for tomorrow. And one of the activities that, that God kind of laid on my heart to do that maybe it would be an encouragement to you as well is uh, I started getting my calculator out and my, and my uh, uh, notebook and started writing down some numbers, okay? So, so stick with me, all right? Even if you got a bad grade in math growing up, all right? If you got maybe, a, you know, a cloud on math day or something, uh, uh, listen, listen up, all right? So uh, I kind of wrote down, all right, what if, what if just in my discipling of people, what if I took, you know, 30 years to just disciple four people, right? I have four boys, all right? Um, hopefully the Lord would allow there to be more discipleship than just the four boys, but let's just say just the four boys are who I could disciple. And let's say in 30 years that they each discipled four people, Right? Maybe they had four kids of their own, maybe just four other people that they discipled. And then let's say in 30 years from then that, that all those people then discipled four other people or put work into four other people to parent them, to train them, to disciple them, to teach them about Christ. And so I, I'm not being aggressive with the numbers, just every 30 years, if there could be another four people discipled, 
And you can do this exercise on your own and kind of multiply by four, but essentially what you get to is, is at 270 years, which I know seems like a long time, but it's not even how long Enoch lived, and he was like a, a youngin, right? So at 270 years, you'd be up to a million people. Now, I don't say that for the sake of numbers, but, but God kind of used that in order for me when I sit at my dinner table and I'm talking to these four boys about life and about God and about his word. The temptation for us to not work by faith, right, to just work with what we see, we can see, man, what's, what, what's the point of this? What's the fruit of this? I'm hungry, I'm tired, I just want to get through today. But what if we could do our work by faith? Trusting that God would use that work today to accomplish whatever he would will for it in the future. And now all of a sudden, those four boys that are sitting in front of me, if God has the long game in mind, if, if, if the return of Christ, if he tarries for a little while longer, in a couple hundred years, we're talking about a million people that could easily be affected and, to, and could know Christ from what's happening at this dinner table right here, right now. There's a great deal of significance with the work that we have to do. And that's just one dinner table. We're not even talking about one church. Or, or all the different influences you guys have, the workplaces you have, the schools that you're a part of. When God told Noah to build the ark, yes, I believe he had obviously had Noah and his family in mind. But he also had you and me in mind when he told Noah to build the ark. He had Franklin, Indiana, 2021 in mind when he told Noah to build the ark. And when we go about our work by faith, we have to have future generations in mind as well. So, for example, the work of planting a church, which is something that we all must see as one of the jobs, one of the, the ways that God has given us to work, all right? You, you maybe you didn't realize this, but you walking into an old dance studio with like a different church name out on the sign and not really sure what's going on, you are signing up to the work of church planting, all right? So, welcome. It is good to have you guys here. It is a part of the work that God has called you to do, all right? But you, you have to see, we must do this by faith. We must do our work, whether it's our vocations or whether it's here as a, as a church plant, we must work by faith, meaning that when we work, we realize that we can't see all that this work is going to accomplish. But we are trusting that our work today is going to accomplish what God would have for it tomorrow. Some of you who are in here this morning, you, you weren't a part of this church when we first started. We didn't know who you were. You were not on the forefront of our heart and mind when we planted the church. But God had you in mind. God had you in mind when he stirred up in some people's hearts to start this church. And although we didn't know you, we by faith knew that God had called us to this work on your behalf. And there will likely be people, if the Lord wills, that come in here two years from now, and five years from now, and ten years from now, and twenty years from now, that will be blessed because of the work that we are doing by faith today. One of the verses of Scripture that has been just such an encouragement to me through these early years of church planting. Uh, it's been from Acts uh, 18. And I'm, I'm certainly not trying to take this verse out of context. Uh, I'm not trying to say that this is a direct promise to us or anything like that. Uh, but many of you know what I'm talking about when you, when you read a passage of Scripture and it just jumps out at you. And it just hits you in the chest. And it revives your soul and it nourishes you and it's so sweet to you. Now, now don't get me wrong, that, that doesn't happen every time I read the, the scripture, okay? Sometimes you just read it. 
But there are times, you guys know what I'm talking about, when the, when the word just, it does become alive and it just nourishes you and it's so sweet to you. And this passage from Acts 18 has been that for me. And so I want to share it with you. Especially in that first year of, of starting uh, and gathering as a church, there were times of, of discouragement. Uh, I don't know exactly what the numbers were, but we might have had more people leave than come in the first year. And there were times we were thinking, you know, what, what are we doing? And in Acts 18, when Paul arrives in Corinth, he starts teaching and reasoning with those in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he starts getting a lot of pushback, and he meets some resistance. He meets people that are opposing him and his work. And the Lord then appears to Paul one night in a vision, And in Acts 18, verse 9, it says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. In church, I realize these words were spoken to Paul in regards to the city of Corinth. But I'm telling you, those words still hit me like a ton of bricks and still fuel my fire week in and week out to not be afraid, but to go on preaching and to not be silent because I do believe with my whole heart that there are many in this city that are Jesus' people, but have not yet called upon his name. And church, he has not asked us to build them an ark, but he has asked us to build them a church. And I'm not necessarily talking about a building. I'm talking about, right, he's asked us to build a body of believers that can disciple them, a body of believers that can raise up pastors that will shepherd them and take care of them and feed them and lead them and teach them. This is the work that God has called us to do. And I know we can't always see it. But I'm asking you to work with us by faith and trust God that our work today will accomplish what God has for it tomorrow. We have to work by faith. What does this mean for you in your workplace? What does this mean for you and your family? What does this mean for you in this church context? We must work by faith. And so in closing, just to to sum up, we must call the people of this city, starting with ourselves, to not worship like Cain did, but to worship instead by faith like Abel. We must call people of this city, starting with ourselves, to walk with God like Enoch did. Looking to him and listening to him and enjoying him. And we must call people of this city, starting with ourselves, to work like Noah did, by faith. Trusting that our work today will accomplish what God has for it tomorrow. Church, it is impossible to please God without faith. And it is our faith by which we will receive a good report. So church, may we live by faith. For he who called us is faithful. Let's pray.